41 people gone this morning on a mission trip to Fairhaven Orphanage in Covington, Louisiana. We ask that you pray for them as they're there and that it would be a blessed week for them. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter number 2 and verse number 16. In our uh, multimedia world of today, there is false teaching of unprecedented proportions. On every side, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ is either openly or implicitly denied. We have glorious riches in Christ. But Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3 tell us that those riches are hidden. Since we live in a society that is accustomed to eye-catching presentations and instant gratification, because of that, many people are susceptible to those who offer the riches of here and now. For example, when you go to buy a couch, the construction materials and the workmanship hidden beneath, what we see with our eyes may not even enter into our decision. We buy it simply because it looks good and it feels comfortable. Some people choose their faith in the same way. They seek that which looks good and feels comfortable. But obviously there are problems with that kind of theology. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, while he was in prison, received a report that some false teachers were going around to the churches and teaching that Christians, that what they had in salvation by faith through grace was not enough. There was more that they needed to know and experience to truly be right with God. Our text begins this morning in verse 16, but I I want us to start reading in verse 14. It says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, verse 16 begins with the word so in the New King James. But the NIV and the Holman Bible, I think, correctly translate it, therefore. We need to understand that there's a connection here. It's still there in, in our text, but not as easy to see if it's not translated, therefore. Anytime you come to a place in the Scripture that it says, therefore, If we want to correctly interpret the Bible, then we need to read the verses preceding that therefore in order to see what it is that it is there for. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, 
intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, in the previous verses that we just read, in the verses before that, Paul has reminded the Colossians that they are complete in Jesus Christ. Christ has forgiven all their sins. He has nailed the list of their sins to the cross, and he has disarmed and made a public spectacle of his enemies. And now Paul writes to warn the believer of the danger of false teachers and that, what that danger presented to their faith. The first two of the threefold warning that we're going to see today is very easy for us to identify because you'll be able to underline in your Bible the words, let no one, let no one. First of all, let no one judge you, beware of legalism. You can underline those words in your Bible in verse 16. So, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are the shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. If you have been a Christian for very long, you have no doubt noticed that sometimes there exists within the Christian circle a a judgmental spirit. Far too often it is possible to encounter a Christian who is that way. You feel like that they are always looking at you, and scrutinizing your behavior, comparing it to some standard that they have established for true Christians to live up to. And when one breaks one of those standards that's imposed by these individuals, the violator is labeled as worldly. In our text, the Colossians are warned to not let anyone judge them regarding the keeping of the laws found in the Old Testament. He pointed out two areas of Concern in particular, diet and days. First of all, diet. The false teachers were evidently teaching that in order to be a true follower of Christ and achieve spiritual maturity, they need to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. As you no doubt know, the Old Testament categorized certain foods as clean and un- and certain foods as unclean, and you can read all about that in Leviticus chapter 11 if you care to do so. The Old Testament has a very detailed list of the foods that were clean or unclean. For example, the Jews could eat beef, but they could not eat pork. They could eat fish that had scales, but they could not eat fish that had no scales. 
No fried catfish. To this day, Orthodox Jews only eat kosher foods. The word kosher comes from the Hebrew word that means proper or fitting. But when Jesus came, the dietary laws were abolished. Jesus taught the Pharisees in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 7, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive whatever enters into a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. Peter had that matter settled for him when he received a vision. He saw a sheet lowered down from heaven, recorded in Acts chapter 10. It was crawling with clean and unclean animals, and Peter was both shocked and revolted. And then in verse 13, he records, And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must, call, must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Later, the apostle Paul drew this conclusion in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 8, where he wrote, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worst. I like the way that the NIV translates this particular verse. It says, But food does not bring us nearer to God, nor are we worse if we do eat, or better if we do not. Not only <clears throat> diet, but also days. The Jews had their special feast days. But of primary importance to us this morning, they had their Sabbaths. Some people, even in our day, still insist that the fourth commandment is still in effect. That Christians should worship on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. But when Jesus came, once again, everything changed. We no longer worship on the Sabbath because we worship on the Lord's Day, as revealed in Revelation chapter 1, the first day of the week, the day which commemorates the resurrection. What we're talking about is legalism. It's the attitude that I can improve my standing before God by what I do or don't do. The danger of legalism is that it reduces the Christian life to a set of rules and regulations. And when the legalist keeps those rules, he feels good about himself. Legalism emphasizes the surface things and tends to emphasize the negative, the do-nots. But they ignore deadly sins such as coveting, gossiping, bitterness, anger, hatred. These, these individuals may brag, well, I've not missed church in ten years, but they're mean as the devil himself. Legalism demands uniformity. The legalist believes that every believer should look 
and act a certain way. They teach that if you are truly right with God, your experience will mirror their experience. It may include how you dress, how you should wear your hair, or what version of the Bible you should carry. Legalism is essentially joyless and leads only to a shallow self-righteousness and produces judgmentalism. Lewis Johnson, in his book, The Paralysis of Legalism, wrote, Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer. And with the joy of the Lord goes the power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but dull and lifeless profession. The glorious name of our Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. The Christian under the law is a miserable parody of the real thing. Therefore, we are not to judge others or allow others to pass judgment on us concerning externals. We, like the Colossians, must not be intimidated by those who would make something other than knowing Christ through His Word a requirement for spiritual maturity. Let no one judge you. Beware of legalism. And secondly, let no one disqualify you. Beware of mysticism. Verse 18 says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen and vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. We want to take note of three characteristics that Paul points out about these false teachers. and The first is false humility. Paul lists that they delighted in their humility. And because they delight in their humility, it is false. They acted humble, but inwardly they were proud of their level of spirituality. Let me let you in on a little secret. You can't be proud of how humble you are. Because the moment you are, you're no longer humble. Spiritual pride is a snare. It's a snare even for us today. Aren't you a little proud that you're in church this morning? What about all those inferior people this morning that slept in? The ones who are at the lake. Don't you feel just a little bit superior to them? There always is that tendency to feel superior. But there is no room for spiritual pride in grace. He also talked about their worship of angels. The Colossian false teachers believed in a complicated hierarchy of spiritual beings with God at the very top. But in order to relate to God, a person had to make contact with one of his assistants, the spirits or angels not so much different than our current New Age belief that everyone possesses an inner angel that can channel messages to you from God. The warning about venerating angels obviously has a contemporary application because of the renewed interest in angels today. The curiosity and obsession with angels 
was widespread in the ancient world, and it has only intensified in our contemporary setting. If you don't believe me, go to the bookstore and look at how many books you can find on the subject of angels. But be aware that not all of them are biblically based. Perhaps the interest in angels today is the perception that angels give us what we want without demanding any commitment or any life change. The non-Bible-based books on angels of our day give the impression that angels are always helpful, always serene, and always non-threatening, always announcers of glad tidings. So many have either forgotten or do not know the formidable role of the angels in Scripture. But these angels that they're talking about have nothing to do with fighting sin. They simply keep bad things from happening to us. In fact, they serve man rather than serve God. The Bible strictly forbids the worship of angels. Jesus, when speaking to Satan during his temptation in the wilderness, said to him, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Matthew 4.10 And when John received his revelation on the Isle of Patmos, he was tempted to worship the angel. But he was rebuked for doing so. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10 says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Finally, there is the dependence upon visions. These Colossian false teachers are basing their teachings on the visions that they have received. Their exaggerated visions, Paul says, are all smoke and mirrors. They're much ado about nothing. And false teachers down through the ages have claimed support for their aberrant doctrine and visions that they have supposedly received. In fact, some of the worst excesses of the charismatic movement are derived through such visions. We must beware any time that Scripture is placed in a secondary position importance behind visions and revelations. 1980, Oral Roberts was trying to build a 60-story hospital in Tulsa called the City of Faith. He had a vision that he described to his supporters in these words. He said, when I opened my eyes, there he stood some 900 feet tall, looking at me. There I was face to face with Jesus, the Son of the living God. There I was face to face with the King of Kings. He reached down and put his hand under the city of faith and lifted it and said to me, see how easy it is for me to lift it. Mr. Roberts reported that his eyes were filled with tears and he promised Jesus that he would share the message with his seed faith partners. 1984, Oral Roberts went to his supporters and asked for $8 million in the next month to complete his project or God would take him home. God would kill him. I don't know how you really get threatened with being taken to heaven, but 
His supporters responded by giving over $9 million to the city of faith, and the hospital did open. It never had more than 294 beds, and then in September of 1989, Oral Roberts closed the city of faith hospital after eight years of operation. I'm not condemning Oral Roberts per se. I'm sure he's a good man. However, the point I'm making is that there is a segment of Christianity that, set, that sets great stock in visions. And if we aren't careful, it will make us believe that we are sub-Christian because we don't have visions of a 900-foot Jesus. But the Bible says that there is no reason for extra-biblical revelation in our day. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, And God who at various times and various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So whenever someone comes along with a new insight, however spiritual it may sound, a vision, however authentic it may seem, if it contradicts the plain teaching of the Word of God, it's wrong. Paul says that this kind of spiritual quest is, in fact, a dangerous distraction. That person loses contact with the head and from whom the whole body grows, verse 19 says. The vision loses focus. Jesus becomes secondary. And as a result, Growth is stunted and believers are cheated of the prize. The prize here is not salvation, but the reassurance that comes in knowing that one is complete in Christ. One is robbed of the assurance when they are made to feel unspiritual, unfaithful, or in need of something extra, something more, something higher than the cross. Let no one disqualify you. Beware of mysticism. Third and finally, let no one enslave you. Beware of aestheticism. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulation? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Aestheticism is focused on self-denial. Paul says that the neglect of the body or the harsh treatment of the body may on the surface appear spiritual, but in fact it has no value. Or power against the indulgence of the flesh. So why do people harshly treat their bodies for religious reasons? They're trying to show God how much they love Him in the hopes that He will bless them more because of this increased pain and discomfort. I have witnessed with my own eyes in third world people continuing to do that even in our day. But you can crawl for miles on your knees. You can beat yourself senseless with a whip. 
You can even allow yourself to be crucified. But your heart will remain unchanged. And that is the problem in a nutshell. Your heart remains unchanged. Jesus warned his disciples against this vain attempt to appear more holy than others by saying in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16, When you do fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Christians should be on their guard against any religious practice that promotes any of the following things. Anything that judges and disqualifies others according to some arbitrary human standard. Anything that makes subjective feelings more important than the gospel. Anything that gives more importance to divine intermediaries than to the historic reality of Christ. Instead of spending time chasing shadows that have no substance or spiritual value, we need to spend time developing true spiritual disciplines that point us to the reality of Christ. Disciplines like prayer and reading the Bible to strengthen our relationship with our Father. Would you bow for prayer? Brother Buddy's going to come and sing and ask. After he sings, we're going to have an invitation. Father, we ask that you would be in our presence today in a special way. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would move. We pray that you'd speak to the hearts of those who are gathered here. Whatever it is that you want to do, whatever it is that you want to achieve in our lives, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.